Let us now pray and ask for the Lord's blessing on the preaching of his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that brings us light and life. By your mercy, please grant us understanding of, of you and of our own hearts. Now as we hear the word preached, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my nearest kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ. Amen. We're celebrating the second Sunday of Advent. The season of Advent reminds us of Jesus' coming in the past, His coming in the present, and His coming in the future. Jesus' Advent is a true and sure thing, a sure event in the past. It is a sure thing that Jesus comes in the present. And he will absolutely come at the end of history to judge the living and the dead. As we consider how Jesus comes to us and what it means for all of us, let us be humble to see the instruction from Scripture. When the triune God comes, it is interesting to note that how he comes and more particularly, what and how he does things. And it's very often not how any of us expect. We carry our own expectations into Christ's coming. When he comes to us, when he teaches us, we have our own expectations that we're reading into God coming. The disciples illustrate this forest frequently in the text of the Gospels. Jesus in the Gospels is on a mission to reconcile the world to the Father by the forgiveness of sins by His own shed blood. And they struggle to get what Jesus is doing and how He is going to deliver them. And this in spite of the fact that Jesus Himself tells them this over and over again. They have inserted their own expectations in how God works and how He comes and what His purposes are. At one point, even John the forerunner wonders if Jesus is the Christ. We see this in Matthew 11 where it says this, And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Now, remember, he was, this, is, this question that, that John the forerunner is, is posing to Jesus is after he's proclaimed him. It is after he has uh, baptized him, and the heavens open, and God speaks, and the Spirit descends, and yet he asks this question. It would seem that John had expected the wrath of God to have already been poured out on the unrepentant. But listen to what Jesus said. Go and tell John the things that you hear and see. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who was not offended 
because of me. Wow. Jesus responded by telling John's disciples about his actions, what he was doing, what he was about. Remember, all of these actions that Jesus lists out here are barriers for people going into the temple and worshiping God. Jesus removed the barriers that were keeping people from entering into God's sanctuary. Even though there is judgment to come by Jesus, and God's wrath is surely coming to us in the future, but Jesus came, as it says in Luke 19, to seek and save that which is lost. May each of us walk through this Advent season in humility. May we not be offended in the ways that God comes to us, that He deals with us, that He challenges us. As God comes to you, He will expose the sin in your life. God will place sanctifying circumstances all around us so that we may see what is in our hearts. When this happens, be filled with gratitude for His grace that He bestows upon us, even when it is not what we expect. So now let us turn to our passage today. I, I wanted to share that with you because I want you to think about this as you hear God's Word preached, as you deal with the people this holiday season, as you go through Advent, and you say, yes, Lord, come. He comes. He meets us at this table, certainly. But He's going to meet you in so many other ways. He's going to come into your life. He's going to, in grace and kindness, expose your sin so that you may repent, that you may draw closer to Him. So let us hear God's word today from Mark chapter 1 once again. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and honey. And he preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit." You know, at the beginning of this passage, we see that the good news is that Jesus is king. Verse 1 says simply this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, we could take that one verse and I could preach an hour on it. Now, I won't for your sake today. I emphasize today anyway. But it is important that we recognize that this first verse in the opening gospel declares as a herald 
that Jesus is king because he is the son of God. You know, the gospel of Mark is a little bit different than some of the other gospels. Jesus is quickly going. He's immediately going. He's doing. These are the actions of God in his way to intervene for his people. And he does this because he is the son of God. This word gospel is the good news. And in ancient times, this good news, when we see the word gospel used in ancient Greek, it was about the good news of a victorious king. We see other examples of this Greek word gospel being used in ancient writings. And it's most often used in a way to proclaim that a new king has arisen. And in this case, the gospel is that Jesus is the Son of God. The new king is the Son of God. This echoes the words of Psalm 2 where God speaks to those who, who have conspired rebelliously against him. Verse 6 of Psalm 2 says, Yet I have set my king, this is God speaking, on my holy hill of Zion, I will declare the decree. Yahweh has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. The good news is that Jesus has come to deliver his people from bondage. The sin of Adam has brought death and separation from fellowship of all men from God. God has from the very beginning promised to deliver us from sin and restore us to relationship with him. The book of Mark shows us that no redemption is to be expected except from the Son of God. Our greatest struggle, our biggest problem, the toughest thing we're ever going to face in life is bondage to sin. And only Jesus Christ can deliver us from it. Jesus, the Son of Man, will be the faithful king, unlike Adam. And this faithful king, he lays down his life for his bride. In biblical times, before the king arrives, heralds would run ahead, shouting that the king was coming. Get ready to receive the king. If you are longing for the king, it is a great time of rejoicing. If you are loyal to the last king, it is a bitter disappointment. And you seethe under your breath rebellion. If you reject all kings, you may be as the hard-hearted dwarfs in C.S. Lewis's last battle and simply deny reality and declare dwarfs are for dwarfs. Some of you may not have read that book, but in that, through difficulty and strife, there's a group of dwarfs who say, we're tired of all these kings, we're tired of this idea of Aslan and God and all these things. What we're saying is, we don't want any king, we're simply for ourselves. When Jesus came, some rejoiced. Others challenged Jesus. And there were others who were indifferent and simply lived as they always had, seeing no real truth in God's word. There are some even today that think that God is slow to get things done. 
They think that God needs to move faster in their circumstances. They will say that God has not fulfilled His promises yet. At this moment in the Gospel, the people of Israel had not seen or heard from a prophet in 400 years. God's call to each of His people was to remain faithful each and every day and every year, generation after generation. Some, I'm sure, were discouraged and even began to doubt God. At the coming of Christ, no prophet had spoken. But God was not late. Galatians 4.4 tells us this, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. In times of waiting, we are too, as it says in Galatians 6, Let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. We need to submit to God in our challenges and our difficulties, in our times of waiting. And we must be faithful every day, even to the following generations. Proverbs 3 tells us this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He shall direct your paths. Too often in our lives, we want to make demands of God. I am in no way saying, don't bring your petitions for relief to God. I want you to do that. We bring petitions here in our our worship service. I expect you to bring your petitions to God in your prayers each day. But your job, my job, is to be faithful and acknowledge Him in all of our ways and then rest in peace that He is directing our paths. You know, in the book of Mark, it speaks of the promises of God's herald. Remember now, there's this long gap, 400 years, and it starts out with Jesus, the King, the Son of God, is coming. And then he brings up and quotes Old Testament passages that reach back not just 400 years, but much farther than that. Verse 2 of Mark says, As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messengers before your face who will prepare your way before you. That's in Malachi chapter 3. So that's right around that 400-year mark. The next quote, though, is this, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight, is from Isaiah chapter 40. So part of what God is saying through the Gospel of Mark is, I'm working my plan from when? The beginning of time. And I make my promises, and no matter how long that it takes, generation after generation after generation, I am working my plans for my glory and for the benefit of my people. God makes straight paths through the desert to the waters of life as a reminder 
when we see this passage quoted in the Old Testament, we need to consider not just the verse or phrase quoted, but really the broader context. Remember, I, I, I know you know this already, but it's important that I remind you. In part, because I don't know about you, but sometimes when I'm reading scriptures, I'm reading through. Yep, I've read this before. I know this. Oh, yeah, that verse right there. I know it's quoting over here. And we have a tendency. All right, I'll rephrase this. Maybe I have a tendency to brush over it. But when, they were, when the writers were writing the, the scriptures, particularly the New Testament, they're writing on things. And whether it's lambskins or papyrus or whatever that they're writing these scrolls with, they had limited, it was expensive, and they had limited amounts. So God intended for us, when he quotes a phrase or a whole verse, that we are supposed to go back and consider what the whole passage is telling us. And we see that in Isaiah chapter 40, the passage speaks of comfort for God's people four times in verses 1 and 2. Now usually, the, the way scripture works, when God is trying to emphasize something, he says it once and he says it a second time. But in two verses, he says it four times. God is saying, when, when I make my path straight, you can be comforted. I'm with you. My plan is at work. But we then see that God's call to repentance is the only way to be comforted in our sin. This voice crying in the wilderness is being, is being done in order to make a straight path through the desert. In the scriptures, the wilderness is a place of judgment and maturity. Israel during the Exodus didn't believe God could deliver his enemies into their hands and were judged. A generation that died in the wilderness and the hearts of the next generation were humbled and tested to believe and trust in God. We see this in Deuteronomy chapter 8. The challenge in any desert wilderness is what? Water. God brings his people through the wilderness in a preparation to change to a new world. And God leads his people through the water to their new status in his blessed covenant. We see this continuously, right? All through history, they're in the wilderness. They got to pass through the water. In Malachi chapter 3, in that passage, after the proclamation that God will send someone to prepare the way for the Christ to come, God speaks to the judgment he is bringing to Israel. And yet, as God says in verse 7, God calls them to repentance. You ever notice that? God says, my judgment's coming, repent. My judgment's coming, repent. Repent says this in Malachi 3, verse 7, Yet from the days of our fathers you have gone away from my ordinances and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says Yahweh of hosts. But you said, In what way shall we return? It's almost indignant. It's interesting to note that this prophecy of judgment in Malachi is a call to the priests to repent. Repent. 
What are the charges against these priests? We see in chapter 2 that it is sexual immorality. And we see in chapter 3 that it is the corruptness of worship by stealing from God. That's really interesting. Does this ring a bell? I, I understand the shelf life of sermons, but we just covered this less than a month ago. Right? You already know that these are the same charges that are laid against Eli and his sons. God required Israel and us today to live according to his word. And when we don't, it brings judgment to the corrupt priests and to the people, resulting that the glory of God's presence departs. Instead of the priests teaching the ways of life through repentance, they live to please themselves so that all that matters to them is maintaining position, power, and status. In Malachi chapter 7, it, says, it makes it clear that priests should teach the words of God. It says this, For the lips of the priest should keep knowledge, and the people should seek the law from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. Faithfulness in worship and the sins of the priests of God bring judgment because they are leading the people astray. Israel had fallen into a deception of salvation by lineage. They believed that they could simply be children of Abraham and then live as they liked. As Christians, we can fall into that same trap. We can say, I've been baptized. Or my parents are Christians, so I can live however I like. This is a lie. People of God, the baptized life is a repentant life. For the baptized, their baptism is a blessing or a curse to them. To be baptized means that you are in covenant with the triune God. Everyone in this room, please hear me clearly right now. Children, some of you have been baptized by me. Others have been baptized by other ministers in the past. But Baptism, either as a child or as an adult, cannot replace the unrepentant life. Yes, you've been marked out by the triune God. You are His. Men, women, children, everyone in this room, you must live a repentant life. If you think that your baptism can replace an unrepentant life, you are deceiving yourself. A baptized life is a repenting life. The gospel is that Jesus rules and reigns over each one of you. God has placed his name on you. You belong to him. God has marked you out as his in baptism. And if you live your life in unrepentant rebellion to the king, you will perish. We must be grieved by our sin and repent and turn away from our sin, lest we cheapen the grace provided to us 
in Christ Jesus. We do not pick our own morality. King Jesus has established what is morally right. We must ask God to reveal our sin to us. We must pray as Psalm 139, beginning with verse 23 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties, my weaknesses, my fears, those things that expose me. And see if there is any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. We need to seek God and rejoice in His coming. We must humble ourselves when God reveals our sin and repent. Let us remember the comfort that is offered to us in Christ in Isaiah 40. And here's our assurance. We know that Jesus came for you and for I. When God comes, there is grace in His advent. These candles do remind us that Jesus is love, joy, peace, and hope. We know Jesus is love. God's love comes to us in Christ Jesus, Romans 8. Jesus, for the joy set before Him, endured the cross for us, Hebrews 12. There's a peace in Christ Jesus because He is Lord of all, Acts chapter 10. We are to be, as it says in Titus 2, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us, that He might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for Himself His own special people, zealous for good works. All of this brings us to the assurance that we have in Christ Jesus. We are to look with right expectations for our blessed hope. Our only comfort is in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus, our iniquity is pardoned. God has made a straight way for us in Christ Jesus. Let's hear that passage from Isaiah 40. Comfort. Yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. For she has received from Yahweh's hand double for all her sins. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of Yahweh, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. You know, we are told that John the Forerunner wore camel's hair with a leather belt and ate locusts and wild honey. Kids, does that remind us of anyone? Maybe I should say that to the adults too. Does this remind us of anyone? John's appearance reminds us of the prophet Elijah. We see in 2 Kings 1 how it describes his clothing in the same way. This helps us to see that John is likened to Elijah calling out in the wilderness. But it is John's diet that reminds us of judgment and blessing. 
in the scriptures, locusts come as armies of God's judgment, destroying all the fruit and the future of the land. John also eats honey. In the land of promise, abundant honey is flowing. John calls for repentance in preparation for the coming king. To those who rejected Jesus, the destruction of the locusts would come. And to those who repented, the grace of God flows as a land of milk and honey. Malachi chapter 4, beginning with verse 5, tells us this. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with the curse. When Jesus comes for the unrepentant, it is truly a dreadful day. And to those who live in humble repentance before King Jesus, there is a blessing even to the broken relationships. Let us pray. Our great and mighty Heavenly Father, we come before you in gratitude and thanksgiving because you sent your Son to stand and take our place of judgment. <coughs> we ask that you come now and search our hearts, that we may live a repentant life before you each day. <coughs> Grant us obedient hearts and hands that serve only you. We ask this for your Son's sake, Jesus Christ, who reigns with you in the Holy Spirit forever and ever. Amen.